Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special, very normal, very, what's it, very regular, but still immensely special Mailbag Edition. I am Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool and he is Andrew Page from Strawman. G'day, mate. I am indeed. How are you? I'm exceptionally well, thank you very much. You are not just from Strawman, you are Strawman in all of the very real and metaphorical senses. You are the founder, you are the managing director, you are the creator, you are the inspiration behind the business called Strawman, which I'm reliably informed is a private investment club or something. You're you're informed correctly. There you go. How about that? I actually do pay attention sometimes. Uh, And if you don't know, The Motley Fool is an investment advisory business that is a privately owned business run out of the US. I can't claim any credit for it whatsoever, but I do happen to be the chief investment officer here in Australia. So there you go. That's our credentials. But let's talk about you because this is our mailbag episode. We love mailbag. I I don't know. I, I can't decide whether I, I love ranting and talking about stuff I want to talk about or I love answering our listeners' questions around. Maybe it's just the way we do both episodes because Friday's more newsy and kind of, you know, investing This is straight out mailbag. Hey, what do you want to hear? What do you want us to say? And we'll look out for it uh, for you. Uh, which one's yours, mate? Do you have a favourite? Uh, any opportunity... To rant is a good opportunity, I think. So in either format, I'm I'm happy with that. Stand by for that concept to be addressed in a second, mate. But we're going to go to a question first up from the Twitter machine. This one came from Donald. So Donald, I said David, Donald. He says, TMF Scott P and Sage underscore Simeon, they are our Twitter handles. Any thoughts on this article for Bloomberg Opinion today? Hashtag fool on, hashtag straw on. Not sure it's going to catch on. But, uh, but I like the effort you're making. Here's the headline, Ram. Stock picking shouldn't be allowed for everyone. The excerpt says, most people who own shares in individual companies don't really know what they're doing. Should the government set more guardrails? And Alison Schrager, I assume it's pronounced, is an opinion columnist. She's a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of An Economist Walks Into a Brothel and Other Unexpected Places to Understand Risk. She's a smart lady. She's a capable lady. She knows what she's doing. And she's asking the question, should individual investors be allowed to own stocks? Donald just wants an opinion on the idea. I think he thought he'd just throw a bit of a hand grenade and then walk away quietly and let us (laughs) carry on from here. And we will, Donald. Mm. So I'm going to give you the first right of reply, Andrew. Should individual investors be banned from buying stocks? No. Um, If Alison's right, most of us don't know what we're doing. Wouldn't we be doing people a favour by saying, yeah, no. Yeah, it's just a slippery slope, you know, because there's a bunch of stuff that a lot of us shouldn't be doing. (laughs) Um, Life is about uh, risk and challenge and choice and all of this kind of stuff. So I'm certainly not a libertarian. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I feel as though once government starts telling you what you're capable enough to do or not is... Is just a slippery slope. It's entirely appropriate and for a whole bunch of things. I think the, the great I find I find uh, allowing people to buy shares into some of our biggest public companies a really great thing, a really democratic thing in in a kind of way. Um, so I, I I I'm hesitant for that because if if if, if, if a number of people do some silly things, does that mean that other because what what we forget is we hear the stories about all all the the people who do silly things and get blown up um but what about all the other people mm. that, that don't 
you know, a whole bunch of people have done some dumb stuff in property. We're not going to ban people buying investment properties. Do you know what I mean? Should so we? it's kind of, well, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, the best you can kind of do, I think, is to make sure that there are, th- this is the thing. It, it seems like a lot of these arguments, they're, they're at the extremes. It's black and white binary things. You either totally shouldn't or you totally should. Mm-hmm. I think absolutely you should, but should there be consumer protections and regulations around that? Absolutely. So that's a, there's a middle ground amongst all of that kind of stuff. That so, is the question though, right? We have seatbelts, but we make people wear them. There, there, are, there are plenty of areas in life where we do specifically have regulation to prevent harm despite the fact it wouldn't harm everybody necessarily. Is, isn't, that, isn't that the very analogy? I'm being devil's advocate for the fun of it. Isn't that the very, the very analogy that says, you know what? Maybe some people can use it well. Sure, some people can drive safely without seatbelts. Not every time you, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't know, pick, pick your choice, right? Um, they ban kids from buying knives. Not every kid's going to use a knife badly. Um, millions of examples of, of things that are banned, restricted uh, for the greater good, for the off chance that maybe despite 99 people using the knife well, one kid either kills himself or somebody else. Um, is, isn't that exactly the point, that we do restrict things from people that could otherwise use them well because the greater good is to not do it? Well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because you, you, your, your personal ideology does creep into it. I, I would say Must that it's, it's not. Look, this, this is the gun debate in the US. You know, it is. Heaps of people own AK-47s, <laughs> assault Safe. weaponry. And it's, and it's actually true, right? I mean, the, how, how many people commit mass murder in the US? Probably 0.001% of the population. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. arguably, overwhelmingly, yeah, people use it responsibly. Well, that's what makes it, that's, what, that's definitely what makes it challenging. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's why I kind of think that there do need to be certain guardrails and regulations and prote- consumer protections and all of that kind of stuff. I, I just think that the 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 benefits, or at least if, if someone does something, decides to take all their savings and buy a bunch of silly stocks and, and lose mm-hmm. all their money, it kind of only hurts them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so there are there are different there are different ways yeah. to sort of to, to look at it. Yeah, but I mean it's such a, it's such a wonderful. As we've talked about many times before, people tend to, I know that when you, if I said to my friends and family, hey, I'm going to borrow 10 times my income and buy a property that's <laughs> yielding gross 2%, no one blinks and everyone thinks, congratulations, right, right, that's right. really smart. If I say I'm going to put $10,000 into the market, <laughs> our listeners will be different. I know you and I will yes, be very so different, well. but I would, yeah. I would yeah. wager very strongly that a, a yeah. very strong percentage of Australians would go, oh my, are you sure? You know, and it's sort of like the, the, the yeah. quantum of risk is very different, you know, mm-hmm. but- it 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 just has this stigma that that that's around it, and and there are there are a lot. Australia has, I think, the highest rate of private share ownership or direct share ownership in the world, and yeah. I would argue that for the vast majority, well, not maybe I shouldn't say the vast majority, for a majority of them, mm. that they've actually they've actually done very well over the long term as a consequence, despite all the usual mistakes and setbacks, etc., that we often talk about along the way. To restrict that and to prevent people from doing that because of a few silly actors, I think is I think is a mistake. Yeah. What do you think? I agree with you. Um, less stringently, though. I mean, well, let, let me be very clear. No, we shouldn't ban individual share ownership. It's it's a silly it's a silly concept. I think the the premise was put forward to be a bit controversial and to make the make the broader point that maybe not, but there are some risks. What what worries me? So a couple of things worry me. The first is. I think, and this this is not even about shares. It actually is about investing more broadly. Actually, almost to your your house point. Um, where do I start? I think there are too many people getting into investing today. And I'll say investing in air quotes. Who are buying Bitcoin and NFTs and 
GameStop shares and playing the the Reddit roulette. I just made up that term. I'm going to trademark it. The Reddit roulette because they're because they're not really doing it right. They're kind of getting caught up on a social craze that happens to involve investing, and so their first X days, weeks, months, and or thousands of dollars <laughs> lost to this thing will be from some. Uh, tangential thing that they would call investing that we would not call investing but they will say I am putting money in the stock market I'm investing I lost money on GameStop it's a stupid idea you should never do it again and that only not, not discourage, only doesn't discourage them from doing it but it also costs them the real money mm. and and that's you know I, I think that's the dark underbelly I also think things like for example borrowing money in super to buy an asset normally houses but whatever it is is also a remarkably stupid thing to do because of the role of super which is not to take your chance maybe make some money maybe not but to slowly steadily incrementally create enough asset value to get you through retirement so there, I think there are you know I'm all for I'm all for yeah, freedom to do whatever you want within constraints I wouldn't absolutely ban anybody from owning shares I think it's a stupid idea to, to ban people but I do think there are too many people doing it badly and a little bit like brokerage costs, which I also have a contrary view on, I think the easier you make it to do and engage in and, and overtrade or, or, or whatever, the, the greater the chance that it actually destroys absolute wealth, but also probably wrecks their involvement. We know so many people who, or stories of anyway, who sold out in the GFC, never came back. Mm. Sold it during the COVID crash, never came back. Stupid idea, never should have done this thing. It was a dumb idea. And I think, I don't know how you, I don't know how you do it, mate. I really don't. And it is the question of freedom versus you know, uh, nanny state stuff, that they're the extremes. There is some saving people from themselves in this. I will absolutely say, by the way, outright, I think there are way too many people who own, who have self-managed super funds who shouldn't. Really, it's just straight out. Because their accountant or someone said, hey, you should do this. The accountant gets a clip. Speaking of, as we said on Friday, never ask the barber if you need a haircut. Ask the guy managing your SMSF whether we should have one. Uh, there's a pretty good pretty good chance he or she will say yes. Um, so, I, you know, I, I love individual empowerment. I love like I was saying that you should be able to buy, everyone should be able to buy shares too. <laughs> just, just quietly. Well, that, yeah, but so it's, it's, it's one of those things where I just, I just think, I think the, the I think... It is an ideological question. I think as a, as a general rule, society's not doing a good enough job of helping people invest properly. And no. that is bad. It shouldn't be solved by banning everyone from doing it. But I do wonder, I think SMSF should have strong, stricter rules, quite frankly. I would, I would be completely on board with a set of rules that I haven't thought through what they might be yet. That said, you can only have an SMSF if. And it might be you have displayed a certain level of ability to understand what you're doing. Or that the cost must be below a certain amount or that the assets should be X. I would ban borrowing in super tomorrow. It's mm. the world's most stupid idea um, because you are risking what otherwise, if you, just, if you just compile super for 40 years, you'll have a squillion dollars when you retire. You don't need to borrow to do any better with that. Mm. And so the idea of borrowing and risking, as Buffett says, you, know, you, you risk what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need. Uh, could you do better if you borrow? Yes, in some cases. Will you do worse if you borrow? Yes, in some cases. If super is designed to take the pressure off the budget, and give us a decent retirement, then conservative approach should be the one you would take with super, for example. So, yeah, there are rules I would there are rules I would change, but I, I think it should be. I think the idea of banning individual surrounding shares is, is a silly one. Well, I think once you do that, you also have to ban credit cards because they're dangerous. You have yeah. to probably ban payday lending, guns. You, you, uh, yeah, seatbelts. 
Yeah, well, no, but I, I'm, I'm just saying in, on, in the financial arena. I know. Right? I'm, I'm just saying there are, there are. There's, you can't stop just there, can you? Yeah, but that's it. That's it. It kind. Of, that's, yeah. that's my my initial my initial point. It's a very, very, yep. very slippery slope. I, I yep. frankly think it's something that should be taught at high schools as well. Yep. You know, not not that you need to get into all the the nuance of yeah. it, but just just yeah. basic financial literacy. I can't believe of all the you know. It's really good to understand how to work out the angle of a triangle. Mm. <laughs> okay, and I'm not saying we shouldn't teach our kids. That, but but the, the things that we don't teach them that have real world practical significance in the modern era that yeah, we live exactly. in, it just like yeah yeah. So they are they are issues that that need to be addressed. Banning them is not the right way to address them. Can I take a tangent on this one, mate? On your mm-hmm. last point, because I completely agree with your education point. But I've said this about financial products, including credit cards, by the way, and other things. I don't think anybody takes out credit card debt thinking it's a good idea because they weren't taught it was a bad idea at school. And the, 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 the only addition I would make to the comments we've just made and actually gets into credit cards and other things at the moment, but I think we are in a, we're in a world where smart marketers and product designers take advantage of our own ignorance and human failings. And I think that is frankly pretty bloody despicable. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about the credit card companies, for example, let's, let's pick those guys out. If you can charge someone 22, 24% a year in good conscience and believe that they are only taking that, that credit on uh, completely uh, logically, rationally, and responsibly, and can absolutely repay it, then that's a very different thing. Mm. The, the, I'm not saying we should ban credit cards at all. What I'm saying is that, and I, the, you know, people say oh, literacy is the answer. And my argument has always been with this, not always, but in recent years. I would have said the same thing 10 years ago. I think people are financially literate enough to know credit cards are a terrible idea. I was going to say another word then. Terrible idea. Um, but they do it because they either think they can pay it back, in other words, behavioural overconfidence, they get themselves into a spot because they got bad luck or bad circumstances, um, that, uh, you know, for whatever reason, it got away from them. And none of those, in my mind, are literacy issues, as in they didn't not know. And you're right, we should teach it at school better and we should prepare people better for it. That would be a, a massive improvement. But I think that's fundamentally a case of grabbing people all their week. It's like saying, well, just tell people that playing the poker is a bad idea and they'll stop. We know they don't because of all of the shiny lights and ongoing, it's like they gamified, right? We know from, from computer games, people get those irregular rewards and it feels good. So you do it again and then the greed takes over and then fear takes over and then you try and win it back. And, and none of that's rational, right? None of that's literally, no one says, I've decided that, uh, I've, I've thought about it and I've been convinced that poker machines are a good idea. No one thinks they're a bad idea. Some people will say, I play it for fun. I lose some money, makes money okay. Some people get absolutely smashed because they know it's a bad idea, but they do it anyway and can't get themselves out of it. And that's mm. the, this is the where I think as a society, and I'm talking about finances in particular here and all those examples of financial. If you, if you have a product or a service or a company or a whatever that's designed to take advantage of our psychological weaknesses rather than our lack of information, that's what I have a massive issue with. And I, I wouldn't put share trading in that at all. So I'm stepping away talking about credit cards now, but whether it's credit cards, buy now, pay later, whatever those things are, I think that's my that's my issue is our society's decided that it's okay. As long as you inform people, you can screw them as much as you like. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't see how that's a good... Yeah, it, mm-hmm. Really, is that what we're proud of as a society? We've, we've given people the freedom to screw each other as long as they said in black and white, you'll lose money playing pokies, gamble, think about your choices, call this number if you want to. By mm-hmm. the way, in the meantime, when you put $400 in the pokies in the next 15 minutes for me, please, I'd really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't I don't know how that's any even close to a reasonable society, mate. What, what am I missing? No, no. It's, yeah, look, the short answer is it's hard. And, and the other trouble is too is often, the, so regulators do get involved for all of the right reasons, mm. but it, it's really, 
ineffective in the end. So even in our game, right, to be qualified to give financial advice, you've got yep. to do, you've got to have certain um, licenses, etc. Yes. But, you know, you've done some of these tests. I, I, would, <laughs> I would say if you can fog a mirror and, you know, you've got the <laughs> IQ above that of a chimp, you know, you'll pass, right? So oh, the regu- By the way, have you seen any stockbrokers have failed the news tests though? Speaking never. Of, speaking of scary. Never, no, they have. have. Oh, really? No, they, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, they've got these tests out. The, the brokers are fine because they don't bother studying and realise how little they know, which is oh a, a tangent but also scary from a different perspective. Go on, keep going. Well, I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I, I remember when I had to do it way yeah. back in the day. Yeah. yeah. And it's actually bordered on on unconscionable kind of stuff in terms yeah. of the, the business just wanted us to all pass and they made it very easy for us to do so. Yeah. It's kind of like so these boxes get created for good reasons, but then they just get ticked and it doesn't yeah. really sort yeah, of totally. solve the problem. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, particularly with some of these these things that I've whinged about to you privately before in terms of trying to set up competition <laughs> in this sector, the licensing, yeah. the AFSL requirements. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. should you have a license for this kind of – yeah, absolutely you should, but it kind of – it actually just entrenches yeah. the incumbent makes Correct. makes challenges very hard and it's kind of like the people the, the the formal definition of qualified to mime some of the best <laughs> investors i know never studied that kind yeah. of stuff at university yeah, they're just very the curious people that just yeah. just learnt themselves and, and you know practice and that kind of stuff but they on paper they're completely unqualified yet the person who's perfectly qualified <laughs> well we know what the industry does that's as right. average they they that's got right. they got real, right. the, the industry at large on average underperforms the index yeah. You know? And these are the these are the experts. So it's yeah. kind of, it, yeah, again, it's hard. <laughs> um I, I don't I don't have an easy answer and and uh it's something we need to think about and work on. But I, I just think that sometimes we have these solutions that look like we've done something, but we've you know it's just like the government calling on an inquiry for something instead of actually doing anything about it. It's kind of <laughs> it's action without actually action yeah, type thing. I agree. I agree. I know. I still think. I still think products that are designed to take advantage of human frailty are are pretty despicable as a, yes, as a general yeah, rule. I, I just I kind of really of all things you could create. It's like this bloody um, uh, these payday loans that are now they're called salary advances now, so they have to call payday loans. Mm-hmm. And it's like there's a product out. There's a need for it. It's like yeah, there's a need for it in the sense that people are overspending. The solution is not hey, let's help them overspend more and charge them a fee for doing it. It's actually you want you want to, you want to help the need. Solve the people's problem. Don't don't take advantage of the symptoms. I, it's just I, I find it massively unconscious. Well, isn't isn't that interesting? Because usually the argument for these products are they'll say there's a lot of people excluded from the traditional finance industry. Yeah, and so we're catering to these these underdogs <laughs> who can't get a personal loan, who can't do all. And it's like it sounds really noble, but yeah. The, but what your solution you're offering isn't helping them either. Forty eight percent interest a year on some of these loans and. They're excluded from the market, so we're, we're providing an alternative. It's like, and look, yeah. the thing is that the problem is it's not untrue, right? There are people out there who haven't got enough money to feed themselves on the weekend. They can go somewhere and get somebody to get some food, or repair the car, or replace the dishwasher. Like those things are yeah. absolutely real and true. The problem is that they then use that as a complete smokescreen to say, so therefore we're going to charge them forty eight percent interest because we can, because no other bastards lending to these people. As opposed to this is a real problem. Let's try and find a solution that help, that helps. It's, they're, they're seeing them as marks, not as not as you know, problems to be people to be helped, problems to yeah. be solved, and that, that's just yeah. it's disgraceful. It's hard. It's hard. Short it's answer to this very very long first question is <laughs> is no, you shouldn't ban it, but 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 please understand that you you know you are responsible yeah. for your own decisions, and you need yeah. to treat it with this with the sincerity and seriousness that it deserves. Yes. Would you restrict superannuation? 
Yeah, I, look, it's it's basically become a tax haven for the rich, is what Super yeah. has become. I, I, but even I, even the use of it, would you would you let people have do whatever they want their SMSFs, or would you put rules in place? I, I think beyond a certain level, there's more freedom. So if someone's got twenty million dollars in Super and they <laughs> want it, you know, it's like, well, I mean, the whole again, it comes back to what's the purpose of this thing to make sure yeah. you're not relying on the public purse in retirement. So right, it's like exactly. you've got more flexibility. Someone who's got a hundred grand uh, mm-hmm. in in Super by the time they retire and wants yeah. to do something regular, maybe there's tiers and stuff that sort of yeah. open up more opportunity. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm shooting from the hip here. I, I don't have an easy answer. No, it's hard. It's hard. But let's get a question from Adam. A couple of questions actually, which are interesting. Hi, Scott and Ram. Loving the content. Thank you, mate. You like this? You like this rant? Uh, I mentioned this Ram. I think you could both squeeze in an extra podcast a week and call it the Motley Rant. Both <laughs> of you grab the soapbox and go crazy. Can I? Can I say, Adam? I love you dearly, mate. But you don't want us to do that. Uh, for your for your sake and everybody else's, we rant enough on this podcast. Uh, this is anyway. Two questions and comments. The first one. The other day, I was caught up in the brain chip momentum and put an order in. I was only a few cents short and it continued to rise above my expectation. That was my first mistake. Mistake two was that I bought it later in the week at what I valued to be, valued it to be a high price. I was worried it was going to slip away. Lucky it wasn't a huge investment and I've learned a few valuable lessons. Now I can be part of the brain chip roller coaster. So my question is, have you been caught up in your emotions and acted on impulse in your investing history? How did it turn out? And then, because Adam's a pain in the neck. He says, don't share the Domino's story, Scott. I've obviously done that too many times. So thank you. Adam. I won't share the Domino's story. Uh, I will turn to Ram first and hope he's got an idea. Well, I think of a different story other than my Domino's story. Have you got caught up in, in kind of excitement, momentum, fear, whatever, oh, yeah, and of kind of carried away? Oh, of course. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And the second part of the question, how did it work out? Not well. Um, <laughs> Tell us the story. You know, oh, I don't know where to start. There's, there's, a, there's a gazillion <laughs> of them. And, and, and that's, that's the lesson that you draw from these is, is mm-hmm. that, you know, when you make those decisions on those bases, it just doesn't work <laughs> out well. So yeah. it just it, it pauses me. I, we're all going to make mistakes. I think the real mistake, though, is not learning from them. So I've actually I've been doing this for over 20 years. I, I've gotten much, 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 much better. And, and yeah. it, no coincidence, my results have gotten a lot, lot, lot better as, as a result as well. Mm-hmm. Can I say a sort of tangentially on this topic? I hate the idea of I think people use limit orders in a really silly way a lot of the time. Yeah. Brainship's a good example. For those that don't know, it's a company that's developing a new kind of computer chip. It's for neuromorphic edge. chip as they yeah, call it's it. It's really crazy cool technology, you know. Mm-hmm. And the market's really excited about it. And and let's say you're not buying it just because the share price is going up because we can all agree that's a silly thing to do. That's just yep. that's just that's FOMO, and that's that is definitely a lesson I've I've learned the hard way, and you don't <laughs> you don't want to do. Yep. Um, but let's say you're doing it for sensible reasons because you feel as though in ten years' time this is actually a legitimate product with a d- legitimate market need and very very likely to see very rapidly um, uh, accelerating, exciting, sustained sales growth. Well. Why put in the market set? Let's say the market's at a dollar sixty-eight. Why put in an order for a dollar sixty-five or a dollar? <laughs> yeah, 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 do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like, if you're, you're, there's two possibilities here on a stock like this, you're either right or you're wrong, right? Yeah. If you're right, this thing is worth twenty dollars in in ten years' time. And right. whether you yeah, bought yeah, it at a dollar sixty-eight, I mean, let's say you're wrong, and let's say this thing drops back to sixty cents. Well, again, you know, 168, 165, 159. I mean, it's it's twiddling around the edges. Yeah. If if you if you are basing these investments because you feel you want to participate in the long term opportunity of the business, 
Yeah. You know, you can buy 10, 20% either side of that and it's not going to make a difference longer, longer mm-hmm. term. So don't, don't nickel and dime it. These are not the things to worry about. I generally speaking always place a market order. I just buy it for me now. The only exception yep. to that will be if they're on stocks that have not a lot of liquidity. So there's just, you know, mm-hmm. me buying it might push through the top three, the bottom, uh, sorry, the top three uh, sales orders. So I just sort of put it there and just I'm patient enough just to get it filled. I don't, I don't want to artificially push the price up. Mm-hmm. Or maybe I'm putting a trade outside of market hours, uh, perfectly legitimate reasons. But even if I do put a trade on outside of market hours, let's say the stock's at a dollar and I want to buy it and I can't put a market order on when the market's not open. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll put an order in for a dollar twenty, knowing that I'm not going to pay a dollar twenty because that. that <laughs> the, remember, with a limit order, it says this is the maximum I'm prepared yep. to pay, but the broker is obligated to buy them at the best available price. So if the stock's at a dollar and I put an order in for a dollar twenty and it opens up at a dollar one or something like that, I'm going to pay a dollar mm-hmm. one. But just guarantees that I that I that I get it. And again, whether I pay a dollar five, ninety two cents, whatever, it's not going to make in five years time. Whether it's a good investment or a bad investment, I'm never looking back right. and going, oh, I wish I'd bought, I wish I'd bought it at ninety nine cents instead of a dollar ten. Mm-hmm. You know, it just mm-hmm. it, it never gonna never gonna keep you up at night. I think that's absolutely right, mate. I think uh, I can't do much more than that. A couple of things for what it's worth. Brainship was the number one traded stock on Comsec last week, mm. which tells you something mm. about the excitement. Yeah. So keep that in mind. Um, so, by the way, it also went from, I'm just putting up the one month chart for fun. The shares were uh, $1.08 on the 11th of January. By the 19th of January, eight days later, probably six trading days, $2.13. Uh, then uh, five more trading days after that, $1.39. Now it's to seventy-eight as we record this. So oh, in December, in December it was 63 cents, you know? Yeah. It's it sort of, yeah. yeah. Now, this might be the next afterpay. It may not. Uh, one thing I will say, we kind of talked a little bit about this on Friday, and this is not actually anything to do with your question at all, Adam. Just be careful of momentum. Uh, cannabis stocks were the hottest thing in the world until they weren't. Graphene, for those who remember that, were the hottest stocks in the world until they weren't. The dot-com crash or boom and crash were the hottest stocks than they weren't. Uh, Amazon was cheap and now it's really, really, really expensive. <laughs> so I'm not mm. saying this is a one-sided view. I have no strong view on brain chip. Uh, there are, can I tell you, the true believers on Brainship are scary people. I mentioned it on Ausbiz once and I had to put up with Twitter uh, comments for a week and a half. Uh, I don't resolve from my comments, but uh, they come sometimes with some costs. So just be just be a little bit careful. Uh, don't get too caught up in the hype. If What can happen is, you made the point, Andrew, and you're right to say most of our listeners wouldn't just chase the price and we all can agree it's dumb, except that it's very easy to see a rising price as confirmation of something actually going on mm. and not wanting to miss out on the gains. Mm. So you kind of say, well, there might be something here. The price is going up. There might be something here. The price is still going up. I don't want to miss out just in case there's something here and you can jump in, right? Just be careful of the lotto ticket approach of, you know, someone's going to win a million dollars. It might as well be me. True. The chance of it being you are infinitesimally small. So yeah. just, just, be a little bit, just be a little bit careful. And then- um, I was just going to say the the, the thing that I, the, the listener sort of said I've I've learned a lesson there. I was just like I don't know if there's enough time to pass to have a, actually learned much of a lesson yet because nothing's yeah, that. yeah the price has moved. I, mean, I don't yeah, mean this yeah, critically. Yeah. Like the, the no, price has right. definitely moved yeah, around a little yeah, bit. Yeah, but yeah. but what's the lesson there? Well, that you already knew that things are volatile, particularly yeah. with a stock like this. Yeah. So you could have bought it at a dollar sixty and it could be eighty cents tomorrow. But you could, you still could be a hundred percent right. Like that, that, that's the thing that we just repeat exactly. again and again and again. If this thing is $20 in 10 years' time, were you wrong to buy it at $1.60? 
No. Uh, you know, even, yeah, you could have bought it in, in, hypothetically at, at half the price and done even better. Yeah. But, but you're, not, you're not wrong. And I don't, I don't think you can draw a lesson on that yet. What, whether you yes. were right or wrong depends on, A, what was your investment thesis? I assume for something like Brainship, it, it, is, it is going to get massive, massive growth. Um, well, the jury's out. We, haven't, we, haven't, we have to wait. <laughs> we have to wait for many years for, to, to see that that, that, that is, is going to happen or not. I mean, you'll, you'll start to get some good. You'll start to get some good reads on it, just in terms of each time they report. Is is there very strong and serious momentum in not mm. the share price, but in the actual sales of the business? Is it actually delivering on your expectations? Um, so far, you can't say anything about it, other than it's volatile. But we knew that anyway. Exactly. Nicely put. Um, in terms of me, I I've, I've not done anything massively kind of detrimental. And again, to to Ram's point, Adam, you haven't yet either. Could be great, could be terrible, but you're not going to know for months or years ahead. Um, I've absolutely done the limit order dance, which is stupid. I remember buying shares at a price, and I put the price up a cent, see if I get shares down. The price would get away from me, so I put the price up another couple of cents and see if I could jag some prices. I think it was stupid. Firstly, if I just bought at market, I would have actually done better anyway. Secondly, as you say, mate, over the long period of time, a couple of cents otherwise is just not going to matter. Um, the only exception would be if you're buying a really, really, really slow-growing business mm. where your valuation is absolutely important. Mm. If you're buying a gas pipeline or uh, I can't even think of any better examples uh, where you've got some really super, super, super stable volumes. Um, it really does matter what you what you pay and how you do it to make sure that- <laughs> that, that, is, that is true, but still not to the extent of a one cent difference. Um, it depends on the percentages, right? But yeah, yes. I take a general point. One cent on 10 cents is a lot. One cent on $100 is, is zero and sure. something sure, in between. Sure. Yep. Adam then says, I'm an also an optimist and I hope that COVID will one day be behind us. So say all of us. What do you think will happen to the share market when the health and science experts in the world eventually say the world has beaten COVID? Which shares and or sectors will be the ones to watch? Adam, we did kind of about this with travel actually on Friday, but Ram, I'll throw it back to you. Other than travel or maybe include travel, mm. what sectors would you be, if you're an optimist and you wanted to buy some stuff that's undervalued now because of COVID that might get a bit of a kick up once the uh, pandemic is declared over, finally, eventually, where would you go? Nowhere different than I already am. I, I think this is this is also a common mistake because people at any point randomly throw me back in time to any point you like in the past, uh, in the modern economic era, um, and there will be a whole bunch of things that people are uncertain about. And 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 the, the right. you will hear people saying, "I will just wait for this to be over, and then I've got an opportunity." Well, when COVID passes, there'll be something else that we're worrying about. I mean, it's already that the narrative's already flipped to inflation, and then we'll be dealing. That'll be sort of the main focus for a while, and then maybe it's 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 war in Ukraine, or then it's you know China doing something. Or it, 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 the, the trouble is, is that any uncertainty once resolved is replaced, or we just focus on a, a bunch of other ones. So it's so I I find that kind of trick. I know that's exact, not exactly what listeners sort of saying here, but it is, it is something to be mindful of. Those, those who wait for, for certainty will, will be waiting forever. And, and ironically enough, at the point of, 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 high, of, of, of the highest certainty, it's usually the most dangerous point in the cycle <laughs> because we're all convinced of something. It's, it's usually the most risky time to, to kind of invest. Um, I'd also just basically say that I, so I'm, I'm making investments with, the idea that okay, hopefully COVID doesn't knock them around too bad, but you know it's more about how they sort of pan out over the next sort of five and ten years. And even in in that forecast, I, there's all these you know, 
quote Donald Rumsfeld, there's a bunch of the known <laughs> unknowns and the known knowns and the unknown unknowns. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of all that. I, just, I have to factor in that I just, yeah. that there's going to be all of that kind of stuff. So yeah. it's those three most important words in investing, margin of safety. You do your best and then you, you put a bit of a buffer in to account for the mm-hmm. unknown. And there is going to be, I don't know what the unknown is going to be, but there's going to be something when COVID passes. Mm-hmm. Um, and COVID may not pass in the way or the timing in which we expect. That's, that's actually been a, a lot of, we've mentioned it a few times um, over the past couple of years. It's just sort of like, you know, um, oh, okay, fa- finally it's over and then Delta and oh, okay, now finally this and then it was Omicron. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's sort of, there's other uh, manifestations of, of this kind of stuff. But even if yeah. it does entirely disappear from the face of the planet tomorrow, there's going to be a bunch of stuff to worry about. So just look look through all of that. Look at the you want a you want a business. No business is immune to to all kinds of neg- negatives, but but there are some that are far more robust than others. It's that that Nicholas Taleb anti fragile kind of idea. The, the kind of business that that is is going to be resilient in the face of a whole bunch of unknowns and economic uncertainties. They're mm. they're, they're out there, you know. Um, is 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 something is 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 uh, let's focus on on the specifics here. So. Flight center, right? Is flight center going to be around in ten years? I, I would very strongly bet, uh, yes, it will. Do mm. I know what that environment is going to be like over the next ten years? No, I don't. But I do know that it's 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 one of those sectors that's always going to be very challenging, just by by nature. Um, and I know that things are going to come out of left field from time to time. But I sort of yeah. factor that in. That's that's the danger of sort of paying for perfection, as they say, when you buy these de- unquestionably very decent companies, but when you buy them with the assumption that nothing can go wrong or it, once this current thing that's going wrong resolves, then it'll be smooth sailing. Just don't do it. You buy these companies when it's kind of like, even when they have these big speed bumps, they're still, yep. you're still going to go okay because you just you, you, you factor that into the price when you, when you bought it. I did a really good point. I, I looked at Qantas's share price graph, not that I do that very often, but I did it just then. Um, the shares had a great day when when the PM announced that the borders were opening. But the shares are now only as high as they were in late November. Yeah. Now, if you'd bought subsequently, you could have bought it almost 450 and now it's 550, you would have made a fortune. If you'd got the timing and the luck right, everything else would have been great. If you'd have bought Qantas at, in, in so it was roughly this price in November, also in uh, October, also in September, in different points, so up and down in between. Uh, by the way, also the same price in April 2021. Uh, if you'd have bought at any of those times waiting for the announcement to come, you would have made no money or even lost money if you bought at higher prices. If you bought at lower prices, you might have made money. But that's the other thing, right, is between now and then, if you could guarantee, if you, if you could have said to me, you know, I think the market will jump 10% when, 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 the, um, when the market reopens and you, you can guarantee a price that's 10% less than what it's going to be at that point, I'll make my money. <laughs> but you have to be able to know where the shares are in between. If Qantas falls to three dollars and then goes back to five, well, you've still lost money. So it's a really, really Adam. I love the question, and it's the right question to start thinking about. The simple reality is you have to know what the share price will be before the announcement and then after it. So you know when COVID is over, uh, will travel go up? Yes, absolutely. Will I go up before that because the market anticipates it? like it has in other industries, probably. As I said, Qantas is not worth $5.50 today based on any historical numbers at all. It's only worth $5.50 based on a future where there is travel. And the market's already factoring lots of that in. So you don't have to be right about the announcement. You have to be right about the share price beforehand and also be better, more right than everybody else. Because if everyone else knows the same things you know, 
Mm. In theory, if the market's efficient, the price will uh, already factor that in. If the market's not efficient, then don't assume you're going to be able to get a good jump on the announcement either because you know you might you might fall beforehand. It might jump afterwards. It might jump or fall afterwards. You might get your 5% gain. You think, oh, great, that was great. Then cost falls back another 10%. You're still below where you started. Um, so many other elements, as Ram said, that can impact your share price. It's absolutely the right thought. I would discourage anybody for trying to play silly buggers with it because the upsides are in the single-digit percentages and any company's volatility is normally bigger than that any, even three-month period, let alone six or 12 months. So it's, a, it's too tough. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Let's go to Craig. Hi, Scott and Pagey, says Craig. Thank you for answering my question on selling overvalued businesses versus never sell. Your response was S-T-I-E-R. T-I-E-R. Considering how difficult the question was, and the first time I've heard someone reconcile the dilemma. That's very kind of you, Craig, except um, S-T-I-E-R is beyond me, mate. Is S-T-I-E-R good or bad? Do you know? It's, um, I had to look this one up. It's, okay. uh, it's, a, it's a gaming term. And okay, so it's play, good players, or bad? We... it's good. It's good. <laughs> okay, so there we go. Okay. Players are, are ranked, you know, from most powerful, most successful to, to least. Yep, so yep, S yep. is sort of the super tier, the superb tier. It's the top tier. It's good. I see. It's a compliment. Take it. Okay. I think I will, and I'll assume you're telling me the truth. Uh, Craig says, two further questions, if I may. I'll keep it brief, good man. Firstly, one, why are remuneration reports so complicated? It's the only section of the annual report that gives me a headache. I'm going to uh, I'm going to start this, but then throw it to you, Ram. It strikes me a little bit like the answer to the first question, where regulators and and corporate governance experts have created rules to answer and, and resolve so many of the problems that can exist with remuneration. All of a sudden, we end up with this palaver of stuff that's hard to get through because everyone's trying to make sure everyone's happy uh, and get through, uh, you know, get through all those all those hoops, as well as try and be reasonable and, and clear about it. What do you reckon? Yeah, so that the the it's funny that the remuneration section is often the longest section of the annual report. Mm. Um, it, it's there because there are rules there that you have to disclose to shareholders how how the insiders are being uh, incentivized and rewarded. It's a great mm. thing that we that we get to look at that. Unfortunately, you get a whole bunch of consultants involved in there, and they yeah. you know they they pad it all out, and it's super. It, it's sort of. Um, I actually think it's a very valuable section to read because mm. I really want to find what the incentives are of, of people. The trouble is all incentives sound good, but there, there's a very, very, um, uh, there's a wide range of, of mm. quality there. So you might say that, oh, I'm looking right through the remuneration report and it turns out that if the CEO can get the share price up above, a, maybe the share price at 50 cents, is if the share mm. price can get above a dollar, he's going to get a big fat bonus. And you'd think, wow, that's that's great. I mean, obviously, if he does that, I win, and you know, he or she should win too because they've they've helped bring bring that about. I think that's great. Um, I would say, actually, no, that's pretty ordinary incentive because you can do a whole bunch of things in the short term to lift the share price up, which which fundamentally hobbles the business longer term. Just gut the company out in terms of costs and your profit's going to rise substantially. You know, get on, get just do a big media circuit and go speak to every broker and investment club in the country and just, you know, pump the <laughs> yeah. stock. You, you, yeah, that, yeah. And they, they are, in, not that they will, but they'll be incentivized to do mm-hmm. that because that's how they get their bonus. Isn't it far better to sort of say, hey, if you can bring the profit of the business up to this level yeah. on a per share basis yeah. over a five-year time frame 
And even then we're going to give you shares that will take a year or two after that to mm-hmm. vest. You know, it's still, it just, it means that, oh, okay, for me to get my big juicy bonus, and I hope they do because that that's going to be great for shareholders, it means I'm going to have to create genuine value in the company and grow the business. Um, uh, and and in, in a way that is that is that is is going to play in out in a way that I can't do some silly things in the short term to to sort of game the system. Right. So right. it's 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 good that it's there. It's a lot of fluff. You can skip through a lot of it, yep. but take take advent take take the time to. For me, it's the, there's there's two sections within it. There's the short, STIs and LTIs, the short term incentives and long term incentives. Mm-hmm. What do they get? What do they need to make happen to, to get that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And do yeah. you do you think it's fair? It'll all sound fair, but think it, think it through. Think about things that are genuinely long term, and also here's another important consideration: think about things that are within control of management. That's mine. You know, there, there's there's a bunch of stuff that 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 could could go well for them, but just you know, ham sandwich could be running the business, and that, and that, <laughs> and that could still happen. So, yeah. I don't know. What, what? Yeah. What would you add? No, I. I- I here's the problem. I think remuneration reports are only required for bad managers, mm. not for good ones. Mm. And so, all rules are made for lowest common denominator by definition, right? You must not speed. Doesn't mean it's not possible to speed safely if you've got a good if you're a good driver in a great car and a clear road. But it means that you could suck, your car could break, there could be a kid crossing the road. So we're going to put artificial limitations on you that mean that. You're not going to get yourself in trouble or cause anyone else some trouble. Mm. Uh, it goes back to our first question, actually. Um, but that's what the rules are for. If, uh, you know, I'll give you a single example about policy, right? Warren Buffett is considered not independent by uh, the, the powers that be because he's been at the company for too long and he owns too many shares. And the rules are you should have more independent directors. And I have on absolute record as saying that Warren Buffett, Jerry Harvey, and Rob Milner at Sol Pats, among others, I own all three company shares, by the way, and not not coincidentally. Um, rules that say those guys have been there too long shouldn't be should, should be considered uh, um, not independent, and that somehow some other professional director from directorsrus.com.au gets to come and be independent and therefore fulfill the requirements of the business rather than these guys who own a truckload of the businesses, care deeply about what happens, and are the forces behind their success. I think that's crazy. Yeah. Now that's not pure remuneration, but it is in the same in the same vein, right? So the STIs and LTIs, the retention bonuses and the outperformance bonuses and all that kind of rubbish, I think it's complete rubbish. And I think you know, they are there because some managers suck and they need to be there. So I when I say they're rubbish, they need to be there. But they only work for bad people because good people do the right thing anyway. Mm. You know, if you're there to do the right job for the right reasons. You'll do it regardless. Warren Buffett gets 100 grand a year and he works, I assume, harder and is better value than almost any corporate manager in America, right? He's not 100 grand with no, no performance bonuses. Mm. And then we say, well, shouldn't we incentivize Buffett to do well? Now, he owns a lot of the stock, so there's that, but he could earn even more, right? He could earn, he could get his benefits plus earn hundreds of millions of dollars a year, literally, by saying, if Berkshire Hathaway does this, I will get paid $100 million. And everyone would say, fair, of course. Well, if the company does well and the incentives are well struck, you deserve the money. And he does. Mm. But does he does he need it? No. There are other people who are, you know, rubbish managers who will absolutely will game the system, as you say, Ram. And this is where it is important how they're set. Because if you're there to make a name for yourself and make some money, then you're not there for long term value creation. You're there to build a reputation and, and fill your back pocket. So when you get a you know incentive, you will argue for the best incentive possible, i.e., the easiest one to get. Uh, you will tell your directors and employer, hey, well, I, I'm, I'm valuable here, and you should offer me something so I come and stay and do a great job, and I'll be more motivated if you pay me more. 
Honestly, I reckon that's complete rubbish. I am of the school of thought from Daniel Pink and others that incentives don't matter in white-collar jobs. They don't influence the outcomes. And if they do, it might say more about the individual than it does about the business. And I'll say for, for what it's worth, and this is, I don't think it's inside baseball, but it might be. I've just said I'm about to say it, so it's in, in, on the internet forever. Mm-hmm. The Motley Fool scrapped our bonus scheme about five or six years ago, maybe longer. Uh, we said bonus scheme. And the business decided, I think completely fairly, even though I love a bonus, and hey, if I am lucky enough to get a bonus, I'll take the extra money if they want to throw it at me. They cancelled the bonus scheme because they went, well, hang on, we, we trust our people. We think they're going to do their best work anyway. If I offer them more, will they take it? Of course they will. Will they do a better job? I'm, I'm absolutely convinced I would not do a single better job if I got paid an extra whatever it was in incentive because A, it's on the hook and largely outside my control, as you said, Ram. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm going to do the best job I can anyway. And if you're someone who won't do their best job if they don't get the incentive... Don't hide, don't hide that person, you know? Mm. Uh, so, you know, there are, there are, there are differences. Salespeople, mm. you know, get their numbers and all that kind of stuff. And there's, there's reasons where your incentives work and they absolutely do work. Of course, the barber and the haircut is exactly right, right? If you want to build business, you might say whatever you, whatever you need to say to get the job. Um, that's a long answer, mate. I, 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 I dislike uh, total shareholder return as a metric because mm. it incentivizes bosses to simply talk up the share price, possibly mm. further than it deserves to be. Mm. If you're a long-term shareholder, what happens? When that person leaves, the share price crashes back to where it was before, which is probably a completely worthwhile price. Mm. But you just, you, you've just encouraged your manager to manipulate, or maybe, might, maybe less uh, controversially, to uh, uh, talk up the share price, to show the business world the benefits of owning the shares. Mm. But if that gets too high because the CEO is, is incentivized to do it, they're not going to stay that high. That's all you're doing is getting an artificial sugar hit and the sugar coming after that's going to suck. That's why um, – sorry. Yeah. I was just going to say that's, that's why large personal shareholdings from management is such – obviously yeah. is, it's just the best incentive because oh, they're in right. the same bucket as you, particularly yep. when there's some trading rules around that and set, say, yeah, yep. things are in escrow so you just can't yep. like buy in and out. You, you kind of – you've got shares but you've got to force to hold them for a long time. That's the – that's the that is absolutely the best incentive, and it's got to it's got to be meaningful, such that it hurts if it doesn't work out well. Totally. So it's sort of like you know a lot of these people, for better or worse, and it's a different conversation, are very wealthy anyway. Mm. And for them to sort of buy a hundred thousand dollars worth of shares in their business and go, hey, look, I'm a lion. It's like <laughs> not really, yeah. mate. Like they go to Correct. zero, Correct. and it's gonna yeah, right. you're not gonna be happy about it. But it's not as though it's not as though you're taking your, your check in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. you know. But so when, quick ones. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll use my favorite example, Promedicus, Right, the, yep. the two founders there own twenty five percent each of the business. Right. <laughs> Like they couldn't sell if they wanted to without crashing yeah. the price. Like they yeah. are they are absolutely laser focused on making sure <laughs> this thing because because yeah. all of their wealth, all of yeah, it, yeah, is yeah. tied up into this kind yeah, of exactly. thing. It's no exactly. it's no surprise under these scenarios that these businesses actually tend to pay a pretty good dividend. I looked it up actually <laughs> yesterday. Right. Sam Hubert, the CEO, he owns enough shares that even though the yield is 0.6 of a percent because the multiple so <laughs> He's doing okay. He got $4 million in dividends last yeah, year. Yeah, that'll, that'll, that'll pay the bill. You know, compared to his, he owns a, you know, he, yep. he, he owns and runs a company that's worth 4 or $5 billion. Yep. $400,000 is a, is a pay pack is, is nothing. Um, is he going to make sure that his, he, the business is, is going to be able to continue to pay dividends and the rest of it? Well, yeah. I mean, cause that, that's, that's where he's made his bank and his entire fortune virtually mm. is, is held up in, in the, in the fortunes of this company and its performance. That is incentive. Yep. That is alignment. More so than any anything you'll find in a remuneration report. I love it. Uh, two quick things for me. I wouldn't use earnings per share given my choice because you can induce that with debt. Uh, super easy to do, right? You, you want to increase your earnings per share. You borrow $100 billion. You buy three more companies. They make slightly more money 
than you used to make before. Like 40 cents a share uh, for the current business. You go and spend $100 billion buying two more businesses, you make 45 cents a share. Uh, per, you know, the profit margin might fall through the floor. Make terrible businesses that make nothing. But as a CEO, I've just increased my EPS by 12.5%, so I'm a genius. Um, so I think that can be that can be dangerous. Mm. I would also, to your point, mate, I, I've said before, if you're going to have an incentive as a CEO, I would pay out one-fifth of the incentive you earn in, a, in any given year over the next five years, mm. one-fifth each year, assuming the business goes on to hit its own targets, whether you're there or not. Yep. So not only does it incentivize you to be long-term in your own business and your own job, but when you leave, you've got four-fifths of your bonus relying on the next person who takes over. Mm. And you are going to be bloody sure if that's a large number, you pick someone well, you mentor them well, and the business is in a good shape when you leave. And that's, totally. and that's the other way I'd put create it. Create a good culture and all that stuff. Totally. Yep. Super, super valuable. All right, that was a good conversation, mate, but we spent a bit long on it, so let's keep moving on. What is the strategic significance, asks Craig, of REA, Seek, and car sales only minority interests in overseas classified businesses? Mm. It's a very specific business question. Yeah. I have a view on this. Do you want to throw your view up first? Yeah, they're, they're, they've got a finger in the pie in case it goes really well. You know, yep. um, that, it may be a minority interest, but it's still substantial uh, shareholding there. It, it means that um, it means they've got a seat at the table should should things continue to go well, and they might want to look to take a bigger stake or to partner with them or that kind of stuff. And, and no, they, they obviously, it's different geography, but they know these businesses and industries extraordinarily well. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a very sound strate- strategic move rather than sort of taking all your own money and trying to set up a, a direct com- competitor or doing something differently. It's, it's just, it's ensuring you've got some, you've got a seat at the table if that ever becomes something you want to pursue more aggressively. I think it's smart. Yep, I like that a lot. Um, I completely agree, mate. I think, so a couple of things. Um, if you don't know the business overseas, you're better having a small stake in it and, le- and learning rather than trying to either buy it outright and hope you can run it well. Mm. Um, it also, it's a bit like paying an earn out, to your point, Andrew, you know, sometimes you buy a business, say, we'll pay you X million dollars today and another $2 million in a year's time if, if you hit your goals. Yeah. It's a way of basically, you're not doing it that way, you're buying a small stake and then you're able to buy more over time if it starts working out well. Mm. But it gets you on the inside rather than being on the outside. Um, it's also probable you can bring your own skills to it and the owner may not want to sell it entirely right now. So yeah. it's a case of, hey, I'll, I'll take a shareholding and I will share with you some of our you know, secret sauce that might make your business better. Uh, so there's lots and lots of reasons. I have no problem with them buying small businesses outright. It makes some sense. Mm. But if you've got someone who's running the business who knows it, who wants to keep going, uh, you're better off being a small part of there. It's a bit like, I mean, it's, it's like buying shares, right? So, we, you know, we, I, we, you and I could pull our money, Andrew, and go and buy the local corner store. Uh, but we could also uh, be a minority owner in Woolies or Coles or something. And if you're if you're one of the classifieds businesses and you know the business well, you think the opportunity is meaningful in the in the long term, you can go and buy some of that upside. I think it makes a lot of sense. The one the one more strategic dimension to it yeah. is that it it. Um keeps competitors away or it gives you more. Yeah, it do you know what I mean? It's sort of like if yeah. someone, if they do yeah. decide going well and then one of your big yep. competitors starts circling, like, well, again, when you're on the inside yeah. and you've got a meaningful voting stake there, <laughs> right. you can say, no, 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 no. We don't, we don't want you to, you to come you anywhere near up. this. So, yeah, it's, exactly. it's, it, it can be quite sensible. I one from Ethan. Hi, Scott and Ram. One for the pod. P.S. Been listening since late October and loved the show. Thank you, mate. This is a good question, mate. He says, I know you've, been, you've spoken about margin loans and leveraging in previous shows but I haven't heard anything on leveraged ETFs. In the COVID crash, I purchased the GEAR ETF, G-E-A-R, a leveraged ASX index ETF. I'm still holding this now, but I'm in two minds about what to do. I want to sell and rebuy the unleveraged index fund instead. 
But if I do this, I'll be smacked with capital gains tax. And I'm essentially rebuying a similar product. By doing this, I will limit my downside risk, i.e. with gear being 70% of my portfolio, I took a chunky hit in the last month. I won't sell now, but I'm thinking of competing, completing this swap once the market recovers. Would someone in my shoes be better off staying with gear? I'm a long-term investor, in brackets, or sell and rebuy an unleveraged ETF. General advice only, of course, is Ethan. He's dead right. Thanks in advance from Ethan. I love this question, mate, because mm. I've had other people say, well, what if I you know, buy an ETF with low fees and then I'll, uh, there's another ETF with lower fees? If you're changing from one ASX 200 ETF to another, even though the ETF's kind of roughly the same, you actually still have to pay capital gains tax. So you need to be careful when you buy and sell this stuff. This is very different because he decided to take a geared approach to benefit from the upside. He's kind of saying, well, the upside's kind of, you know, it's been, re- been realized now. I've made my money. I kind of feel like I want to take some risk off the table by going to an unleveraged ETF, which obviously means he's not leveraged to any downside, but he's going to have to pay tax to do it. So again, we can't tell Ethan what he should do, but what do you think, mate? Uh, it depends on the specifics of how they gear and what risks are around that. One thing you can say is even if there's no sort of mechanism in there that can see everything go completely belly up, it's just going to it's just going to magnify already pretty big volatility. So, you know, maybe over as a long-term investor over 10 years, it's just going to be a hell of a bumpy ride, but overall you'll be better because of that gearing. Um, but yeah, just remember it magnifies the downside as well. And even in a flat market, it's negative too because of the interest and carrying costs and all of that kind of stuff. So it's kind of like you, yeah, I, I'd be, I'd personally a little bit wary. Um, I think frankly, when it comes to invest in life, in fact, in general, Tax is the best problem in the world to have. Um, you know, if you have a huge tax bill, it's only because you've made a lot of money. So that's good. You want to do everything you can to minimize it. In this instance, though, the bit the the primary question is: Are you comfortable with the inherent risk of this fund in terms of how they structure it? And you'd, you'd need to look into that. And if mm. you are happy with that, are you happy with with volatility on volatility? It's, it's going to be you know you think the market's mm-hmm. volatile. A geared a geared ETF is going to be far more volatile. And are you happy with that? Mm-hmm. And if you're not, then I think it's probably worth taking it on the chin at this early stage and switching into an ungeared product. Uh, if you are, and again, let me emphasize, you, you're confident that the fund can't blow itself up, um, then there's, and you're yeah. a long term investor. It's there's, it's not it's not entirely silly at all. I I actually completely agree, mate. Um, I think the issues are potentially the. And I don't know this product really well, so we can't. Well, I can't have a, a strong view on the gear ETF specifically. Um, I've said before many, many times that I, um, I would happily put my entire next ten years of contributions uh, in today if someone would lend me ninety percent of my of the of the of the price without a margin call, right? Because it's the margin call that kills you. Mm. I have every confidence that the market goes higher from here over time despite whatever wobbles. If that's true, then a leverage ETF that didn't blow itself up or, this is the other thing, cost you too much in borrowing costs in the meantime mm. would be mm. worth doing. And the borrowing cost question I think is worth asking and it's worth asking about the ETF because there's a reason banks don't lend that percentage of, of, a, uh, of a, a portfolio without a margin call because they don't believe or don't trust in the ability to recover the value of the asset if everything goes pear-shaped. And so I, I think that's probably a mistake from the banks, but I also understand the approach. Um, so if the if the lender to the ETF is happy to say, never ever a margin call, the interest rate is tiny and I'm going to let this ride for as long as you want it, then that's a really, really nice op- proposition. If it's 
actually, we're going to charge you five and a half percent interest. Well, okay, that's going to that's going to halve your returns in a, in a, you know in an average year. If the average year is ten percent or eleven percent, and Ram has said before, never is exactly average, but let's pretend. Mm. Um, if you're paying half that interest, yeah, that's that's a start. That's a tough start. In a bad year, it goes down, as he says. And if there's a margin call or some sort of refinancing risk, then that's another issue. And again, I, I'm not saying there is. Please check on that particular ETF yourself um, and make sure you comfort yourself that there's not. But uh, there, there's no free lunch, right? That, that's kind that's kind of the problem. Uh, so you know, if if but if, it, if there is some miraculous funding or some miraculous structure, then maybe it's maybe it's worth doing. And as I said myself, if you if you gave me a a three percent interest rate on a ten year loan. Uh, put all my next 10 years contributions up front, I would take it in a heartbeat. With no margin call, I'd take it in a heartbeat. Mm. But no one's going to because no one does. Gear may have found a way to get that funding under those sort of conditions. And if they have, that might be worth looking at. But very rarely are there free lunches. Uh, and so I'd be interested to see what it had to do to be market beating and for how long. And again, whether there are times when the value of the fund is materially reduced because of both obviously the leverage itself, but also whether or not at some point the financier has the ability to call in a loan, which would cause meaningful value destruction and frankly, permanent value destruction on that basis. So I like the idea. I love the idea of being able to leverage my returns or simply just bring forward my contributions. But I don't know that I would trust uh, that everything is kosher until you did the work and checked it yourself. I just had a quick look. You can't get a margin call on this particular product. Okay. But can the, can the product itself be called? The investor can't. But if the loan is callable with inside the fund, it actually may reduce the value well, of the fund I, I, to sell. No, it's going to take a while to read this document. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so that, and actually, that's an important point, right? So yeah. I, I don't know the answer to this, but by ask yourself, because if people, and we've had people say this before, you can't get margin called on the ETF. And this is about the investor themselves. But if the assets inside the fund are callable by the lender, it will reduce your the value of the assets held by the fund regardless. You don't have to put in extra money, which is nice. But if you've got a if you've got a fund that's worth hundred dollars and it goes to seventy and then the lender gets to call in another thirty dollars of of cash to, to to pay down the debt, your hundred goes to forty and permanently because you can't reborrow that money because it's you had to sell the shares at a low to to fund that call. So again, the margin call can be inside the ETF, not outside. So just be be careful because the structure is the same in terms of the impact on your finances. The fact you personally don't have to pay up more money is good, but it actually may not. Uh, the the value of your assets may fall by a similar amount that if you had, because the fund itself inside the fund might get that call. Yeah, gotcha. may have to sell assets to, to pay it off. So just be yeah, careful with that yeah, as well. Yeah, good point. Mate, I reckon we're done. That was a fantastic set of questions and some great conversation. I enjoyed it thoroughly. If you want to send us a question, email us at info at fool.com.au. Also, you can get us on all the socials and I will go through them again. For those who know them off by heart, thank you. If you haven't yet followed us on the Twitter machine, do that because that's the only place Andrew is exclusively on Twitter, as I say every week. <laughs> Go to sage underscore Simeon or Strawman Invest. You can hit me up on Twitter or Insta at TMF Scott P. You can hit The Motley Fool up on Insta or Twitter at The Motley Fool AU. You can go to Facebook and go to uh, facebook.com slash The Motley Fool Australia or facebook.com slash Scott Phillips Money and use any of the DMs in any of those places to send me a question. Uh, don't send it to Andrew, not because he doesn't care, just because I collate all the questions, so it's easier for all of us. Uh, but do follow him anyway because he's got some great stuff to say, always interesting, always valuable. Um, the conversation we have on Twitter and on this podcast are what makes the whole thing fun. So do that if you wouldn't mind. Follow us, send us a question. Let's have a chat on the Twitters or the Facebooks or the Instagrams. You on TikTok yet, mate? No. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> so, I assume that'll be the same when we meet next on Friday. Until then, full on. Cheers. 
The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.